the holiday of Rosh Hashanah is a holiday that has a lot of mixed emotions, a lot of mixed feelings to it. Certainly people experience a lot of mixed feelings. Uh, on the one hand, we know that it's the Jewish New Year. It's referred to in all of our literature, in the Machser, which is the holiday prayer book for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It's referred to as Yom Hadin. It's referred to as the Day of Judgment. And obviously, being referred to as a Day of Judgment immediately sends all kinds of signals, most of them negative, to us in terms of, uh-oh, what does the next year have in store for us? How, how worried do I have to be? How nervous do I have to be? What do I have to go through in order to convince God that the next year should be a good year? Or do I really want to go through that grueling process of hours on end listening to cantoral pieces and choirs and all in the belief that if I behave myself, I'll get a new good year? You know, we have a lot of problems. Expressed or unexpressed, we've got problems when it comes to Rosh Hashanah. The concept of judgment on an emotional level, on a psychological level, is one that's difficult for us to deal with. And you put it together with the fact that there's the regiment of so many hours and such a strange prayer book and the blowing of this mystical ram's horn called the shofar. You put all that together and you put a little honey on it with apple and a couple of other customs of Rosh Hashanah and we have a very weird mixture. It's a very funny mixture. And it, it's hard to really analyze properly what the holiday is all about. And I use that word holiday very purposefully because we are told that the same way that Passover and Shavuos and Sukkot are holidays, Rosh Hashanah as well is a holiday. And one would think that that would be the most poorly a poor, most poorly defined way of expressing one's feelings towards Rosh Hashanah. It's a day of judgment. It's a day where we are very introspective. It's, a, it's the first of the ten days of tshuva, the first of the ten days of repentance. It begins the first, ten, first of the ten days of repentance. And to call this whole thing a holiday seems to be very much off the mark. And what I'd like to try to analyze this evening is how can we call Rosh Hashanah a holiday? And even if we don't want to call it a holiday, how can we approach the holiday of Rosh Hashanah with somewhat of a more healthy attitude, a more positive attitude? What are the attitudes of Rosh Hashanah? Now, as is our practice in all of the, all of the lectures up to this point, we try to make a blend between the theme of a holiday and the, the mitzvot, the positive commands, and the customs of the holiday. So for tonight, again, for tonight, we just have to briefly touch base with what are the mitzvot, what are the positive commands of this holiday that are unique to this holiday and the customs that are unique to this holiday. And then we'll proceed to try to investigate some of the themes and see how the mitzvot and the customs of the holiday are an expression of it. Well, the primary mitzvah, believe it or not, the primary mitzvah of the Rosh Hashanah holiday, besides praying, is the shofar, is the blowing of the ram's horn. And there are certain distinct uh, sounds which we blow out of the shofar. We have the tekiah, which is the, the long, unbroken sound, 
we have the shvarim, which is the three, uh, the sound broken in three longer segments, da, da, da. Then we have the trua, which is ch- much more choppy and more rapid succession, da, 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 da. And then the tki at the end of every group. Every grouping has a tki at the beginning, a tki at the end, and different combinations of the shvarim, the three, or the true, or the nine, or both together, in the middle. And that's the mitzvah of shofar. On the first day of Rosh Hashanah, the mitzvah of shofar, the commandment to blow the shofar, is a biblical command where we are told that it's Yom Teruah, it's a day of blowing the shofar. On the second day, it's rabbinic. If the first day of Rosh Hashanah comes out on Shabbos, we don't blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. I'm not going to get into the reasons why, and we would blow it on the second day. This is the primary mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah. Other than this primary mitzvah on the day of Rosh Hashanah, there, are, there is a lot which is custom in the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. The custom being, number one, to eat things that are sweet, to stay away from things that are sour or very bitter in terms of the, our meals. And that's why we wouldn't eat pickles or anything that's terribly sour. <laughs> On Rosh Hashanah, some people have a custom that they don't eat any of these sour things straight through till Hoshana Rabbah, till the end of the Sukkot holiday, as a, merely as a symbolism that the next year should be sweet and not sour. And essentially, we eat a lot of things which are symbolic. We eat things that have remind us of certain things. Uh, let's give some examples. One example, which is more from our grandmother's table, is the example of eating carrots and the example of eating fish, right, which are essentially symbolic things. The carrots in the Yiddish language is said is expressed by, in the word merin, That's the Yiddish word for carrots. And essentially what we're saying is that it's a play on words, that our merits should be many in God's eyes. Merit means a lot. So we eat the carrots and we say, Yirbus Chuyoseinu, that our merits should be many. Now, fish is also that we should multiply like fish or that we should have the mazel, we should have the luck of fish, which is a whole discussion which I'm not going to get into right now, what it means, the luck of fish. In any case... In any case, all of these things, and there's lots of them, in Sparta custom, there are 15 different things that we eat on the night of Rosh Hashanah, and each one has a, symbol, a symbolism. You know, we eat the head of, um, of, of either of a fish or of a kevis of a lamb, and we say that we should be heads this year and not tails this year. Things of all, all of those natures of that kind of nature. And this is not child's play, but essentially the way the great Kabbalist, the Shalah HaKadosh, explains this, he explains that essentially what we're doing is that we're trying to take different things from the world around us and use them as a form of motivation to come closer to God. In other words, there's no magic in eating carrots that God is going to see more merits. But the fact that I eat something that reminds me that I need merits and I pray to have merits, is some, taking something from the physical world and using it as a reminder moves me in the direction of wanting it. Because you're taking something physical and it's like you're trying to incorporate it, you're trying to bring it in and using it as a stimulus to, to, to want merits and to want to be ahead and to want to be forgiven and to want to have a sweet year and so on. And these are the customs. Obviously, there are special readings on the days of Rosh Hashanah from the Torah. 
and there are there is a spe- there is a very special prayer that goes along with the blowing of the shofar, and the special prayer that goes along with the blowing of shofar is incorporated in the additional amida on the day of Rosh Hashanah, and it's broken into three parts. There are ten verses that refer to God being, is, and will be king of the universe. Ten verses that speak about God's remembering, his constant remember, uh, remembrance of us as a people and his future memory of us to take us out of exile in Mashiach's times. And then verses that deal with the shofar. The shofar in the past, the shofar in the present, and the shofar to, to be. And this is all a combination. Each one has ten verses, and we blow the shofar at the end of each ten verses with a special blessing. And this is all incorporated into the shofar. But if one would really want an accurate, accurate picture of what the centrality of Rosh Hashanah is all about, aside of it being a day of judgment, the centrality of the day of Rosh Hashanah is communicated by a vehicle. And that vehicle is the shofar. The shofar is the tool in hand to bring all of our prayers and to bring ourselves to God. And what I'd like to do this evening is try to understand what does this mean, a day of judgment? For what are we being judged, number one? Number two, how is this ram's horn, this shofar, in any way a vehicle of this day of judgment? How does it help us? How does it bring our prayers before God? What is it all supposed to mean? What's the connection between the shofar and our prayers, the shofar and the day of judgment? What is it all about? What does it mean? So let's start at the very beginning. And before we get into a discussion about the shofar, which is a fascinating discussion, let's start with trying to understand what the day is all about. There is a rule, which I never mentioned before, in terms of all of the holidays, which is, is about time that we mentioned it. And that is that each of our holidays is created as a creation in time of a particular or unique holiness due to an event which occurred in our past history. In other words, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Take, for instance, the Passover holiday and the Shavuos holiday, which we covered over the last couple of weeks. Passover was a period of time in which the Jewish people experienced redemption, physical redemption and spiritual redemption. So there was a gift that was given into this time, created into this period of time, called redemption. Redemption the quality of redemption, the connection of God to his world in a way that people can lift themselves, elevate themselves, pull themselves out of the rut, out of the ditch that they're in, spiritually or otherwise, is a spiritual quality. It's a holiness that God gifted the time with that acts as a magnet and pulls us out and encourages us and inspires us to move away from an old culture or to move away from a subculture as Egypt was relative to where we were going as people. So Passover is a time of redemption. The redemptive process was made possible by a gift of holiness that was put into this time. And that gift of holiness acts as a magnet. It pulls us. It attracts us. 
away from something that's less than what we can be, less than what we really are, and pulls us in the direction of what we should be. Anybody that was ever in contact with something spiritual, something inspiring, knows how it acts almost like a magnet and it pulls a person. So there's a quality of redemption. The quality of redemption is through a gift of a, of a, um, a measure of holiness that drags us, it pulls us, it elevates us. Fine. Take, for instance, the Shavuos holiday. Something very specific happened in our history. God appeared at Mount Sinai and gave us a spiritual treasure called the Torah. So that, again, is a gift of holiness that is being brought into the world that helps us. So the time becomes gifted with a spiritual gift and therefore the time is essentially a special time because of the gift that was made and introduced into that period of time and therefore the Shavuos holiday. The point being that every holiday has what you call on the West Coast a happening, a spiritual happening, a spiritual happening, but that that spiritual happening is a gift of holiness, unique, either a gift of redemption or a gift, gift of the treasure house of, of how, to, how to live a lifestyle that's spiritual, whatever it is, it's a spiritual gift, and it's actually embedded into the time. Just like Shabbos is a, is a special day, there's a holiness to the seventh day, to the day of Shabbos, and that's in the day of Shabbos. So in the Passover holiday, there is a, a gift of redemption in that period of time of the year. In the period of time of the Shavuos holiday, there is a gift of Torah. And the person that observes the holiday, believes in the holiday, lives by the spirit of the holiday, can actually access some of the redemptive quality of Passover and help himself redeem himself or bring himself out. Or when it comes to the Shavuos holiday, there is a period of time that if a person applies themselves to the learning of Torah or to a commitment of Torah, there's special help in that period of time for the person to be able to succeed, to make spiritual roots. So the concept of holidays by in the Jewish in the Jewish way of thinking is that each holiday is a creation of holiness in time that's unique to a particular gift that was given in that period of time historically that represented a unique feature in the growth of a person if it's redemption or if it's learning or if it's protection whatever it might be but it's a unique gift in the process and therefore the way we look at the Jewish calendar is that it's a way of growing we go through Passover and we get an ability to elevate ourselves. We then go on to Shavuos and we get a way of incorporating a higher lifestyle. We go on to Sukkot and we get a way, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we get a way of cleaning out some of the junk. We come to Sukkot, we get a way of protecting that which we've purified. Each, in other words, so the, the whole system of holidays is not fragments that are celebrated through the year, but it's a system of development. Passover is redeeming, Shavuos is learning a new lifestyle and a connection to God on a higher lifestyle level, and so on. Each holiday is a growth process. And that's why there was one of my teachers that used to say after, uh, after each holiday, Nisht ayyantif avek, nor ayyantif tsugikumen, which means in the English language, not that a holiday went away, but that another holiday was added on to the richness of my life. Not that another holiday went away, but another holiday was added. Another thing, another, uh, in the development, another thing was added. 
Now, being that this is true, being that this is true, that every holiday has a happening, a spiritual gift that was representative of that happening, and that's what creates the specialness in time that is that holiday, the question that comes up is, what happened special on Rosh Hashanah? That's the question, and that's a major question. On Passover, we left Egypt. On Shavuos, we received the Ten Commandments. On Sukkot, we were protected with, with spiritual clouds in the desert. On Yom Kippur, Moses came down from Har Sinai, from the mountain of Sinai, with a message of forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. But pray tell, what happened on Rosh Hashanah? What happened on Rosh Hashanah? This is the question. More than that, Besides the question, what happened on Rosh Hashanah, we have to ask a second question. What happened on Rosh Hashanah that represents a spiritual gift that makes that day holy as the holiday of Rosh Hashanah? These are the two major questions. <clears throat> then there's another question. So this is the first question. What was uniquely special, what happened on Rosh Hashanah? And why is it a spiritual happening that it gifts the time with some measure of spirituality? That's the first question. Then there's a second question. The day of Rosh Hashanah is claimed to be a day of judgment. What is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. Now, most logically, most people would reverse the order. First, let's go through Yom Kippur. Let's go through atonement. Let's go through purification. And after all of that, then let's go to the day of judgment. Why do we have to go to the Day of Judgment with all of our baggage and get judged on that Day of Judgment and then after the Day of Judgment start worrying about everything from the past year? If I would have made up the calendar, I would have done it in the reverse. First, let's have a Yom Kippur. First, let's purify ourselves. Let's get rid of everything that doesn't belong. And then we can stand neat and clean in front of God on the Day of Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Judgment so that the Day of Atonement should come first and then the Day of Judgment. Why do we want it the other way around? It's not logical. This is a major question. It's not a joke, this question. This is a major question. Okay. So let's, let's begin <clears throat> in the following way. There is a statement which is made within our prayers on the Day of Rosh Hashanah which says the following. Zehayom what does that mean in English? This day, the day of Rosh Hashanah, it is the beginning of your actions, God's actions, and it acts as a memory to the very, very first day of creation. And this is in our, in our literature, of the Machser, we say, Zehayom, this is the day, Tchilas Masecha, the beginning of your actions, Zikaron Liyom Rishon. It's a memory for the very first day of creation. There is an immediate problem with this, because it's not the first day of creation. Because the Talmud tells us that the first day of creation was six days before that, on 25 days in the month of Elul, was the very first day of creation, and then you had the 26th, and the 27th and the 28th and the 29th and, and then on the first day of Tishrei the first day of Tishrei which is Rosh Hashanah it corresponds to the sixth day of creation so when we stand up on Rosh Hashanah we're really referring to the sixth day of creation not the first day of creation 
Nevertheless, in the literature of our prayer book, we say, This is the very first day. This is the, to remember the first day of creation. So there is an out-and-out, blatant contradiction between what the prayer book says and the reality. Because the day of Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation, not the first. And our prayer book refers to it as the first day of creation. But the answer to this question is a very awesome answer and gets people a little bit uncomfortable. And that is because even though creation began five days before Rosh Hashanah, but in a certain sense, creation really didn't reach the beginning until the sixth day of creation, the creation of man. Why? For one simple reason. Because everything else that was created in the first five days of creation was created with laws of nature and it functions within particular laws with a framework. There is no choices that are made and the sun doesn't have a choice to come up or not to come up. The moon doesn't have a choice to come up or not to come up. The plants don't have choices to grow or not to grow, neither does the grass. There is nothing in the first five days of creation that performs in the way that God wants it to because it chooses to. Nothing does in the first five days. The phenomena that we see, a relationship between the created world and the Creator, where there is a sense of connection, where there is a sense of commitment to do as one was asked to do, which in, in a certain sense is a call of long live the creator it was in the creation of man. Now, when God created the world, what did God ultimately want from his world? God wanted from his world that man should be bestowed with the goodness of realizing his creator. There is nothing else in creation that has to realize its creator because everything is in a regiment that it performs as it was created to perform. There's no choice to go. The grass wakes up one morning and decides, well, I'm not going to do what God told me to do today and not perform. It, it recognizes its purpose. It has a spiritual connection and it does because it was created to do that way. The only thing that makes a positive statement or can make a positive statement of I believe and I feel and I'm aligned with you, and I want to bring out your purposes of creation, the only being that can do that, and hence, the only being that really carries the flag of creation, the purpose of creation, is man himself. Because man has the choice. And by virtue of having the choice, when man does make the choice, it means a lot. I didn't have to. I could have chosen differently. Why did I choose this way? Because I'm intelligent. I feel a sense of connection. I feel a sense of commitment. I want to align myself with the purposes for which God created the world. And I will listen as a servant of that creator to what he has asked me to do. That's a statement that's made through choice. And the beauty of, of long live the king doesn't come out of a person that has a gun to his head and has to say, long live the king. The beauty of the statement, long live the king, or I, I appreciate this God and I want to be connected to this God, comes out of a person that says it out of his own volition, out of his own choice, out of, out of his own motivation, out of his own understanding, out of his own sense of inspiration and depth of commitment to that, to that God. And therefore, 
God says, This is really my first day of creation because the whole world was created for the purpose of the connection of God, the revelation of God, the appreciation of God. That only becomes possible on this sixth day of creation through the creation of man. So while in fact the physical creation of everything else transpired in the first five days, but God says, but where's the tachlis? Where's the purpose of it all? Where's the goal of it all? Where is the where is the where is where is my creativity? Where is where is the possibility of my goal on this day? On this day of Rosh Hashanah, on this first day of creation. <coughs> so if we would want to answer the question, what happened special on the day of Rosh Hashanah? Every holiday has something special. So what would we say happened special on the day of Rosh Hashanah? So you said quite correctly, the creation of the world. But now we have to qualify that. The creation of the world with the possibility of it reaching its goal, which is the creation of man. So if we want, would want to know what is the beauty of the day of Rosh Hashanah, the beauty of the day of Rosh Hashanah is the creation of man. That exalted being called man. That was the greatness of the day. Now, what's so great about that? Right? What's so great about that? Some people would argue that the difference between what was created on the fifth day, which were animals, and that which was created on the sixth day, which was the human being, is only distinguishable in the difference between the vertical and horizontal movements. That's the whole difference. But we know that when God created the world and created the world for the ultimate benefit of man through his realization of God, God did give us a spiritual gift in order to be able to accomplish that revelation. And that spiritual gift was the neshama, the soul. So just like Passover has the quality of redemption and the holiness that elevated us, and just like the Shavuos holiday has the gift of Torah, which gave us a lifestyle, the uniqueness, the beauty of the day of Rosh Hashanah, the happening of Rosh Hashanah is the creation of man, but the creation of man with the most exalted creation within himself, that being his neshama, his soul. That's the beauty of the day of Rosh Hashanah. And if a person asks you and straps you on the shoulder and says, what makes the day of Rosh Hashanah holy? The answer is not because it's a day of judgment. What makes the day of Rosh Hashanah holy was because that was the day that God said, what I wanted for this world can happen because I created man and because I created man with a neshama. And that's what we, we have to put the two things together. The uniqueness of this day is because I created on this day that which would make possible the ultimate benefit of the world, the creation of man, that was made possible through the creation of his neshama. So in capsule form, the day of Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of man, the birthday of neshama. That's what the day is. And henceforth, the day becomes a day of holiness. We take the questions after the presentation. That's what makes the day as special as it is. Now, being that this is so, being that this is so, <coughs> we then go back <coughs> And we try to analyze what is the concept of day of judgment in relationship to what I just said now. 
In other words, being that I said that the God's connection, his hope that the world would reach, that which was, it was intended to reach was made possible by the creation of man and the creation of soul within man. So now we have to go on to the next thing. So where does the day of judgment get in? Why can't we just have a birthday cake with birthday candles, 5,747 candles, blow out the candles and celebrate the day as the birthday of mankind? Where does the day of judgment blend into this? The, the concept of the day of judgment blending into this blend comes in in the following way. Being that this day was the day that God said, ah, it was for this that I created the world. Every year when that day comes around, that God says it was for this that I created the world, God stands back and, said, and asks the question, was it really worth it? In other words, in other words, I'll explain what I mean by that. In other words, being that I created this world with all of the hopes and all of the hopes were expressed in the potentials that I gave man. Let's see what man is doing with the potentials that I gave him. Is the world getting there? Is man utilizing the potentials that we're celebrating on this day to get there? So in other words, this day is a day of supreme hope and trust on God's part. That's what the first Rosh Hashanah was. Supreme hope and trust in mankind. And every year, God decides, is the world worthy of this trust and hope? Now, how does God decide if the world is worthy of this trust and is worthy of this hope? Well, God looks at the world, looks at the direction that it's headed in, looks at man, looks at the neshama of man, the potentials of man, and says, let's see what's happening. Is man, does man see his central role as central as God sees it? Does man really comprehend how much God is hoping and trusting that this individual will be utilizing his potentials for his ultimate benefit and, move be, and the world responsibility, the universal responsibility to make the world a better place. Is man addressing the issue or is man just becoming self-centered, falling into the me generation kind of philosophy? And this is what's judged. And ultimately on the day of Rosh Hashanah, what we have to make as a, a statement as individuals or at least as a group is that we are committed to using our potentials to make this world a better place. And if we can make that statement, and certainly if we can prove it on the basis of what we've done in the past, certainly God says there is reason for hope, there is reason for trust, and the people that are assuming that responsibility should be given another year of whatever they need in order to continue their endeavors in that direction. That is essentially what the spirit of the day is all about. <clears throat> now, working along this concept, we can go now back to answering the first two questions that we began with. We asked the question, what was special about the day of Rosh Hashanah? We answered it. The day was special in, in the fact that God expressed tremendous hope and trust in the creation of man. And that hope and trust wasn't just hot air, but God put something behind the hope and trust. What did he put behind the hope and trust? A neshama. That's what makes the day holy. 
And when we get up on the day of Rosh Hashanah and we say the day is special and we're celebrating as a holiday, it's our way of saying to God, thank you for trusting me. Thank you for having hope in me. Thank you for giving me a neshama, blowing into me a neshama, into me a neshama that, that gives me the possibility of fulfillment and happiness and the ability to make a universal contribution to the rest of the world as well. That's what the day is. Now, it is very understandable now why Yom Kippur comes after Rosh Hashanah. Because were a man to go through the Day of Atonement first and then go to the Day of Rosh Hashanah, he would never survive. Why? Very simply. Because what the Day of Rosh Hashanah is out to accomplish is to build man's belief in himself. To, believe, to build his trust in himself by knowing that God trusts him and has hope in him. To, to build his belief in the neshama, to believe, build his belief in the soul that's within him. And once a person is built up and told that you're so important that we're going to celebrate your creation, then you can tell man, based upon the strength of that self-esteem, now being that you are all of that, shouldn't you get rid of the things that are hampering your growth? But if you start the other way, and the person through the last year and all of the failures and believed failures and preconceived failures and all kinds of different things that the person has, he's weakened in his own eyes. He doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't believe he's got it within himself to do it. He might not even believe that he has any free will to do anything anymore. So how is he going to go to a day of atonement? You have to have a lot of belief in yourself to go through a day of, of change. Because to go through a day of atonement means a day of change. A day of change means that change is possible. Change is possible only if you believe in yourself, that you have the strength to make those changes. So therefore, even though technically speaking, it would be more logical to get rid of the baggage first by the day of atonement and then get to Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment. But God understood the psychology of man, that man needs the inner strength and the self-concept of knowing that God's celebrating his birthday first. And that after man knows that God's celebrating his birthday, then man can say, if God wants to celebrate my birthday, there's something that I should live up to. There's something that should give me strength. And that will give me the strength to begin the process towards the Day of Atonement. This is the way that this is explained. Now, here we come... And with this, I'm going to end the first segment of, of this understanding of Rosh Hashanah. And here we come to the, the naira, the awesomeness of the day of Rosh Hashanah. What do I mean? Obviously, I've explained now, in a certain measure, the happiness of the day of Rosh Hashanah. But Rosh Hashanah also has the element of awe in it. It also has the element of fear in it. It also has the element of reverence in it. It also has the element of concern and anxiety of what's going to be in the future in it. Where does that spirit come into the day? Just because it's a day of judgment? That's a good enough reason, but it really goes back also to the first day of creation. Because on the first day that man was created, it was on that very day that man also sinned with his neshama. And that's what makes the day 
so awesome and so worrisome. Because at the same time that that day of Rosh Hashanah is a day that is an expression of the exaltedness of man, it is also an expression of how far man can fall from his potential as man fell on the very day that he was created. And now with that as an introduction, in other words, which almost ruins everything that I just said, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to confuse you and get you down there. Right? With that, n knowing that the day was a day of tremendous height in the creation of man and the creation of soul, it simultaneously represents the choice to fall from that exaltedness. Now we have to go into the second segment and try to understand how do we grab hold of the day. How do we reconcile ourselves with the fact that the day was a, a, a day of a tremendous high and also a day of a, an awful low, the fall of man at the same time? How do we reconcile both? Isn't it the story of man? Doesn't it dissuade us that no matter how great we are that we can't accomplish? How many times have people told me, listen, at first man couldn't keep it right even on the first day that he was created. What does God want from me? I'm certainly not as great as first man. And if man was so great and wasn't able to do it, I certainly can't. So we might as well give up before we start. And then the message of Rosh Hashanah seems to be a very, very discouraging message instead of an encouraging message. How do we grab a hold of this? Let's jump into the second part because this is where the Schaefer comes to play the role. And let's explain the Schaefer. There are a lot of things about the Schaefer. <clears throat> and I'm just going to give you a capsule picture of the concept of the Schaefer and how the Schaefer works and the mechanism of the Schaefer. And, and I'm not going to bog you down with all of the proofs to the particular concept that I'm going to share with you, which is a very beautiful concept and has to my knowledge, at least 20 proofs. The concept itself has at least 20 proofs, but I'm not going to bog you down with the proofs. I'll just share with you the concept and we'll apply it to what we set up to this point. <coughs> One of the verses that we say after before I get to one of the verses, I must relate to you. I must relate to you um, a tiny, tiny episode. It's not even an episode. It's just something that happened. Happened every year on the day of Rosh Hashanah. I had the privilege for many years to learn and to, and to also attend the particular synagogue that Rabbi Hutner was, was the rabbi of. Rabbi Hutner was one, one of the teachers that was a very strong influence upon me. Rabbi Hutner was a very strong-minded person, a very strong-willed person, always behind the scenes, never up front, a, a philosopher par excellence, a depth of thought and a depth of feeling and inspiration that was phenomenal, but a powerhouse. And he definitely reigned in his, in his particular yeshiva synagogue with tremendous respect and awe and love. Chaim Bolin. Yeshiva. 
And I'll never forget the first time that I spent Rosh Hashanah in the yeshiva. The custom is that they select a person who is um, a community leader, a righteous person who has a very good reputation to blow the shofar, and even a greater person to direct the blowing of the shofar. Because there are a lot of things Kabbalistically that the person that blew the shofar wouldn't necessarily know, but the person that would instruct would know them, and the two would get together, they'd work it as a team. So one would do the instruction and do the thinking, and the other one would do the blowing, and together as a team they would make a meaningful blowing of the shofar. And Rabbi Hutner was the one that, that, um, that instructed the person to blow the shofar. Right before the shofar is blown, there is a verse, there's a uh, chapter in Psalms which is said seven times. And that, Lamatzech Levnei Korach. And that particular psalm talks about the Jews' tremendous hope in the coming of Mashiach. That's what the whole thing is about. And how God will eventually be revealed to all mankind and accepted by all mankind. This is what the verse is about. And I'll never forget the first year that I was there. Obviously, you made the greatest impression. But as everybody was saying these seven psalms seven times, and this is a very serious moment on Rosh Hashanah, Raputna was bent over crying like a little baby. Here the man of tremendous strength and power and will, I mean all in positive ways, with a strong mind, strong will, and when it came to this moment, it was, it was just crying like a baby. And that, that shows you this is in general something which needs a lot of study. The, the ability to be totally open in emotions is what makes a person successful in his growth in Judaism. A person that's closed emotionally brings that closeness into his Judaism as well. While a person who is open in his emotions will be able to then be open in his Judaism as well and will be able to thrive. In any case, Getting back to the shofar, one of the verses that we say immediately after blowing the first 30 verses is, praised is a nation that knows how to blow the sounds of the shofar. Ashrei ha'am yodei srua. Lucky is a people that knows how to blow the shofar. Now, mind you, there is no big skill in blowing a shofar. I can teach anybody how to blow a shofar in 10 minutes or less. And the Medrash asks this question. There are people that blow trumpets, and there are people that blow clarinets, and there are people that blow all kinds of complicated instruments. A flute's a lot more complicated to blow correctly than a shofar is. Why are you getting carried away? Lucky is a nation that knows how to blow shofar. So the Medrash answers cryptically, and the Medrash says, Lucky is a nation that knows how to seduce its God by blowing the shofar. That's the answer. Nothing else explained. Then there is another madrash which says that when we blow the shofar, we have segments. We have first 30 that we blow with the blessings. Then we have another 30 that we blow in the Amida pray. And then we have another 30 in the repetition. And then another 10 at the end. It adds up to 100 sounds altogether. So the madrash says that when we blow the first 30, what we are actually doing is telling God to come into his chambers of justice and judge us to the extent of the law. That's what we're doing. And then when we blow the second 30, 
God is compelled to stand up from his throne of judgment and to sit on a throne of compassion and mercy. Now, this is very, very perplexing because who in their right mind asks the judge to come into his chambers? I'd be happy if God would stay out and God would forget about me. Why do we blow the shaper and actually invite God into his chambers of justice? In fact, there is another medrash which says, similarly, that, quote-unquote, whatever this is supposed to mean, but it says that the angels asked God, when is the day of Rosh Hashanah? And God says, don't ask me. When you'll hear the shaper, that's my invitation to start the day of Rosh Hashanah and get the judgment going. It's up to the Jews. It's not up to me. And it's not up to you. It's up to them. When they get it going, that's when it happens. This is very peculiar. Who in their right mind does something like this? And then what's this? When you blow another 30, then God gets up from the seat of justice and sits on the seat of compassion, which is a symbolism. There are no seats up there and he doesn't sit. But what is it all supposed to mean? It's weird. Now let me tell you something that's even weirder. <clears throat> there are three individuals that are really one. They're not individuals, but again, it's a symbol. Look what he did wrong. In other words, creating the contradiction and then punishing us. Now let me explain this, because this is not an external process. This is an internal process. Before I do something which is negative, and I'm only thinking about doing it, it's, it's essentially external to me. It's not within me. It's not cooking within me. It's not doing anything. Once I do the behavior and I repeat it a few times, it becomes part of me. It might even become a habit. It might even become something that I desire very deeply and it becomes a part of me. And then it creates a contradiction between the positive things that are inside of me and the negatives. And Charlie, why don't you make up your mind who you are? Are you the positive person or are you the negative person? That's the prosecution against oneself. The inner conflict that one brings onto oneself the contradiction, the inability to be at peace with oneself because of the apparent contradictions of behavior that we internalize in ourselves. And then the process that God creates is that the negative behavior takes its toll within us, which is ultimately supposed to be a purification process. How often do you hear the refrain from honest people when they say that I did it to myself? Right? And that's essentially what the third individual is. It's not some external punishment, but I did it to myself. I introduced it, I brought it in, I made the contradiction, and now I suffer the consequences. Right? A lot of people aren't willing to accept that. They, not, they don't want to see how they bring it upon themselves, but they do. In any case, <clears throat> the contradiction is called... When it's, called, when it's a negative inclination, what is it called? Yetzer hara, the negative inclination. When it creates the inner conflict and contradiction, what is it called? The satan, the prosecution, which means the contradiction. And when it punishes, in its most extreme form, what is it called? The malachamavis, the angel of death, which doesn't mean angel of death, it means the inner punishment that's created by a negative behavior. In any case, Who's busy on the Day of Judgment? We're pleading our case. What's busy on the Day of Judgment besides us trying to show up all of the good aspects that we should deserve a good year? Satan. The Satan. 
the, net, the, the prosecution, the inner conflicts, the inner contradictions, the inconsistencies are saying this man is not true, this man is not honest, this man is inconsistent, the Satan. So the Yerushalmi says, which is a part of the, of the Talmud, just it wasn't in Babylon, it was, this part of the Talmud was, was authored in Jerusalem, it's called the Yerushalmi, says the following thing that when the Satan hears, when the Satan hears, when this element of contradiction hears the first sounds of the shofar, he gets worried. Why? Because he's not sure. Because he knows that in chapter and verse it says that when Mashiach comes, the Satan is going to go out of business. The prosecution is going out of business. Everybody's going to do things right and he's going to lose his job. And it says that the shofar will, will bring, will herald in the period of Mashiach. So when he hears the shofar on Rosh Hashanah for the first time, he gets nervous. Maybe Mashiach is coming and I'm losing my job. <laughs> this is what the Yerushalmi says. Right. When he hears the second group of, of blows, he says, I better get out of here before I get into trouble. And he leaves the courtroom and God is left to decide the fate of man without any prosecution in the courtroom. <coughs> now obviously this is all symbolic and it's all symbolism and it can't be taken literally, but there's a message here, there's something that's being told. Parenthetically, I must tell you a story, I'm in a storytelling mood tonight. I must tell you a story of a Jew that waited every single moment for the coming of Mashiach. A Jew that I had the privilege of, of being with earlier, earlier in the same time that I learned in Lakewood, there was an individual there, the Mashgiach, who was responsible for the ethical conduct of the students. And he literally, he hoped and prayed, and every third word was, when is Mashiach coming? And if he got a wedding invitation, he used to call over the person and say, why does it say that the wedding is going to be in Brooklyn? Don't you believe that it's going to be in Jerusalem? You should write, it's in Jerusalem, and just in case Mashiach's not here yet, then it'll be at this and this place. He really believed it with all of his heart. In any case, there was this fellow who was very creative and found a source that before one gets married, one goes through the process of penitence similar to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And that it would be acceptable to blow the shaifer as a way of waking oneself up to the mood of repenting. So one night, at about two in the morning, when he thought everybody was asleep in the dormitory, and it's about ten days before his wedding, he decides he's going to blow the shaifer. So he blows the shofar in his dormitory room and out of the other room runs this mashgiach with his briefcase and he has one thing in it and he says, Who is there? Where is he? Where is he? Right. Now that's a story par excellence of the, 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 the simple amuna, the simple belief in the coming of Mashiach. But in any case, getting back, getting back to the point. In any case, my question is the following. We are very knowledgeable about our negative inclination. He's very smart. He comes with another scheme every single day. You mean to tell me he doesn't know that there's Rosh Hashanah in the world? You mean to tell me he doesn't know that you're supposed to blow a shaifer on Rosh Hashanah? What is he getting so nervous about? He most probably is working overtime trying to convince people not to go to shul to listen to the shaifer. Nevertheless, when he hears the shaifer, oh, maybe it's Mashiach. Don't you know? Didn't you get a greeting card from anybody with a picture of a shaifer on it? What are you so nervous about, prosecution? 
What's, what's your, what are you so nervous about? It's Rosh Hashanah, so people belong to Shaifa. They did for thousands of years, and they will for another thousand years. What are you getting so uptight? What are you getting so nervous that Mashiach is coming and that you're going out of business? One final question. What is the day of Rosh Hashanah called in the Chumash? <coughs> what is it called? It's not called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a Talmudic term. Uh, Yom HaZikaron is true, but it's also called something else. What else is it called? It's also called Yom Teruah, a day of the blowing of the shofar, the day of the blast. Right? Okay. Now, but let's analyze this. Let's analyze this. I mentioned before that we have different sounds to the shofar. We have the tekiyah, which is the, the long, unbroken sound. Then we have the shvarim, which is three broken sounds. The truel, which is in rapid succession, even choppier sounds. Da 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 da. And then the tekiyah at the end. What is the significance of these sounds? So the significance of these sounds, this is based in various sources. The significance of these sounds is the following. The tekiyah, the, the, the straight blowing, which, by the way, is accomplished by simply blowing straight from oneself into the shaifa without doing any gymnastics with one's lips or tongue, is the tekiyah. This is symbolic of the straight and the pure way that the person is brought into this world, the way the person is created. Now, what is the shvarim and what is the trua? The shvarim is that after man is created pure and straight, he complicates life for himself. And after complicating life for himself, he regrets the complications. And he begins to cry. And the shvarim is the beginning of crying, which is controllable crying. Ah, ah, ah. It's still controllable. But then as the person conceptualizes how far they've gone away from the tekiyah, the crying becomes uncontrollable crying. Da 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 da. Well, you can't catch your breath. <laughs> That's what the Gemara says. So the Shvarim is for the controllable crying, the True is for the uncontrollable crying. And then the key at the end is the ultimate belief that through that process, the person will return to the Tekiyah, will return to the purity that he had as he came into this world. Now, why is the day of Rosh Hashanah not called Yom Tekiyah? It's not even called Yom Shivarim. It's called Yom Teruah. It's called the day of uncontrollable crying, which is symbolic in the, un in the choppiest of sounds of the Shaifer. That's what the day is called. How do we understand that? And at the same time, Rosh Hashanah is a holiday. So let's explain. And now all of the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle will come together. Let's explain. <clears throat> what the Jew does on the day of Rosh Hashanah is the following. All year long, a person has the ability to run away from themselves. How do you run away from yourself? Because nobody is really looking over my shoulder and even if somebody is looking over my shoulder, I don't know that anybody's looking over my shoulder. 
And if my conscience tells me that what I'm doing is wrong and I better straighten out before it gets too hard to straighten out, I can always tell myself that I don't have any time. This is something that I hear on the phone all the time. Rabbi, I just don't have any time. I can convince myself that because of all of the priorities and all of the other things that I have to do in my life that I can't deal with this right now and I don't have the time and effort. Yes, I'll get around to it eventually. But what are we doing if we're not doing a sophisticated way of running away from ourselves and we get used to not even feeling for ourselves spiritually? Yes, we feel for ourselves in terms of physical deprivation. We feel for ourselves in different forms of emotional deprivation in terms of relationships that are not good. But do we give ourselves the opportunity to feel for ourselves spiritually? Or are we afraid of that? We're scared of it. We feel insecure about it. We don't know what it has in its wake if we're going to experience it. And therefore, we create all kinds of modes and all kinds of excuses not to have to face feeling for ourselves that's based in spiritual feeling for ourselves. We recognize the fact that all year long we play this game. But we also recognize the fact that if we are to play this game forever and ever, we won't be able to grow. And therefore what we do on the day of Rosh Hashanah is we blow the shafer and we ask God to sit on a seat of justice. Why? Because when God sits on his seat of justice, what feels God sitting down on his seat of justice? Our neshama feels it. Because our neshama is directly connected to God. And even if I, on a logical plane, can't explain why I feel nervous, or why I feel a sense of fear, or why I feel a sense of awesomeness, my neshama feels it. My soul feels it. Because my soul is connected. In fact, it says in the prophets that when God wants to know what's going on in a person, he, he, he searches man with a candle. What's the candle? The person's own neshama is the candle that he, that he searches man with. That's the connection between man and God. So what we do on the day of Rosh Hashanah is, is a very fascinating thing. We say, God, sit down and look at me. Look at me with the whole book of justice. Because by you looking at me with the whole book of justice, I'm going to pick up a feeling that I should be looking at myself. I'll give you an example. Nobody here is wearing a tie except me. Okay. You know, you have a spot right there. Okay. When somebody points to you or looks at you, so what's your natural reaction? You look at it. That's the same thing. Essentially, what the Jew is doing is the Jew is calling out to God, look at me. I want you to look at me because by you looking at me, something inside of me in my neshama makes me look at myself. And when I look at myself, honestly, I begin to see that there's certain things that, it shouldn't are, that are there that shouldn't be there or things that aren't there that should be there. And I begin to feel bad for myself. Now, most of you are going to say, eh, self-pity, that doesn't fit into the whole spirit of Marlboro country, American, American lifestyle. Who ever heard of feeling bad for yourself? Well, that's wrong. Because spiritually speaking, and Jewish speaking, a person in order to grow has to allow themselves to feel for themselves. 
and feeling for oneself in the process to be able to grow means that I can feel bad about something. I mean, if I, lose the, if I lost the $10,000 business deal, I would feel bad for myself. Why is spiritual growth any different? It's not different. Right? And the notion that it's sissy to feel bad for yourself is not true. It's healthy to feel bad for yourself as long as it's in a process that's towards growth. So what the Jew is really trying to do is the Jew understands that God can't feel bad for me until I feel bad for myself. But I don't feel bad for myself. I'm not used to feeling for myself. So what I do is I call God in to look at me and to look at me with the whole book of justice. And by his looking at me with the whole book of justice and making the statement that I believe that this is a day of judgment, I actually begin to feel the awe of the day. And I say, and what's with my life? Can I really stand before God? And oh, how, how I failed here. And oh, how I could have done better here. And oh, how I had a potential to do this and I wasn't able to do this. I feel so bad about this. God, give me another chance and I'll straighten it out. When God sees that the person feels for himself, so then God says, then, then, then I can feel for the person. God gets up from the seat of justice and sits on the seat of compassion. Now, What's phenomenal about this process is the maturity of the Jew to understand that justice itself is a building block. Normally, we would think that we should run away from being judged. Normally, we would think, don't feel too much because you'll get yourself too involved and you won't be able to, quote-unquote, handle it. But the maturity of the Jew is such that he invites the feelings. He invites the emotions. He invites the experience because he knows that even though the experience is quote-unquote a heavy one, he knows that this is what he needs to grow. And he'll bring the experience upon himself because he knows that he needs to ride that experience. Ah! Praise! Lucky is this people that they know how to seduce God that they can actually ask God to judge them. God looks at them, you people are crazy, you're asking me to judge you? You gotta mean it. You have to be sincerely committed to wanting to grow to ask me to come into the courts of justice and to judge you. If you're so seriously interested in growing, how can't I have compassion on you? How can't I help you grow? How can't I not give you another year in which to grow? Ashraham, lucky is this people that they have the maturity and the insight, that they know how to seduce God with the broken sounds of the Shafer. And this is why the day of Rosh Hashanah is called Yaim Teruah. That's why the day is called the day of crying, and not controllable crying, but uncontrollable crying. Because what the Jew is essentially doing in crying is not giving up and not being depressed. I'm not talking about giving up and being depressed. But the Holy Balatanya says, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe says, that when a person is crying because of, of what he wants in spiritual growth, that is the sign of the most living neshama alive crying for for what was lost in terms of a spiritual opportunity or crying in the aspiration of wanting to grow spiritually is the most lively neshama possible. It's the neshama that's screaming out for God. 
That's what, and that's Yom Teruah. So when we asked the question before that the day of the greatest creation of man, the creation of man, the creation of his neshama, the neshama, the birthday of the neshama, the birthday of hope and trust in mankind is also the day that man failed. Yes, it's also the day that man failed, but it's also the day that Adam Arishan did tshuva on and came to grips with the fact that he has a neshama that he has to feel bad about. In other words, they're not contradictory. A person is great and a person is also imperfect at the same time and a person can never have a perfect ten straight through life, coast through life with perfect tens, God expects it. But what God expects after the failures is that the person knows the value of his neshama and on the basis of the value of his neshama feels bad and on that basis does tshuva. If we weren't to have within ourselves something great and beautiful, we wouldn't really have too much to feel bad about. What did I spoil already? But if I have a great neshama, so as much as the day represents a day of exaltedness and a day of failure, it also represents a day that I should feel bad about that and try to get back to that point. And that's the greatness that lies in that, in that day. Now, let's get to the satan. Ah, our favorite friend, the satan, the negative inclination, the prosecution... Let's go talk about him. <clears throat> Let's talk about him. Let's talk about him. See, there's one thing which is very interesting, and with this I'll finish and I'll take questions. Let's talk about this negative inclination. What is the negative inclination there for? What is he there for in terms of prosecution? What is he there for? Now, in other religions, the concept of the negative inclination is a demon, a monster. He's out to destroy you. Okay? And other beliefs will go so far as to say that you have no way of winning against that negative inclination unless you believe in this, that, or the other thing. And that is the only way that you will be saved from eternal damnation and so on and so forth. Well, the Jewish concept is completely different. The Jewish concept is that really the negative inclination was created for the purposes of growth. And he is as important in God's kingdom as anything else that God created. At the end of creation, of the six days of creation, God looked at all of creation and said, not only is this good, but this is very good. So the Talmud says, what does good mean? The creation of man. What does very good mean? The creation of the negative inclination. Why? Why? Because the way we look at it is that there is nothing that's outside of God. There's nothing that's separate from God. The negative inclination is a tool that is presented to man as a challenge so that man should grow. That's the way we see him. Now, obviously, as long as he is not used as a tool of growth, we just listen to him and we go paint the town red, obviously, he is not, I am not using him in the way that he was intended. But, if I can use him in a constructive way, if I can use him in a constructive way, so then, that's what he was created for, and if I use everything in creation for what it was created for, then we reach. We reach our ultimate goal. What diverts us from our goals? Because we look at the negative inclination as a separate thing, and we follow him separate. We don't use him as a tool to grow, we use him separately. 
but if we would use them to grow, so then everything is incorporated, everything is unified, we'll reach our goal, instead of being taken off the trolley tracks every other day. Excuse me? The goal is to reach a total recognition of, of God, of God's values, emulating God, and the, the, this, these distractions don't help us in understanding this. Okay. We'll talk about it more in questions. We'll elucidate more in the questions. Now, here's what happens. The prosecution is busy incriminating man. Right? But when the prosecution, here's the blowing of the shaifa, the prosecution says, what's going on here? Man is calling his own prosecution. What is man doing when he blows the shaifa? He's becoming his own prosecutor. So now the prosecution says, what's going on here? He's taking my job from me. Why is man prosecuting himself? Could it be that man is prosecuting himself because he wants to grow? So then he's utilizing me for what I was intended for. So I'm trying to prosecute him and punish him because what? Because he utilized me as a separate force and therefore he doesn't belong in the scheme of the ultimate goal. But by his blowing the shaper, he's actually calling his own prosecution. If he's calling his own prosecution, God will look at him. If God will look at him with the whole honesty of judgment, he will look at himself with the whole honesty of judgment. And he will feel bad for himself in the whole honesty of judgment. And if he will feel bad for himself, God will certainly feel bad for him given the strength to grow in the next year. So Sutton says this is Mashiach. When man is prepared to bring his own prosecution for the purposes of growth, there's no telling how far man can go. Because once man opens up to being honest and to feeling himself spiritually, the extent of how far he can grow as an individual, and when we get the whole Jewish people doing it together, there's no telling how far it can go. And the Sutton, even though that he knows that there's a Rosh Hashanah, and even though he might have gotten a couple of greeting cards from his fans, it doesn't matter. But he knows that there's a possibility here in the growth of man to the extent that Mashiach might be around the corner. That's the, that's the fear that the Satan has. Now, <clears throat> essentially, and with this I'll close and I'll open up to questions, essentially what we're then saying is that the shofar becomes the tool that a person awakens the feelings for himself. And by awakening the feelings for himself, then God feels for the person and now that there's a feeling relationship I feel for myself and God can feel for me now because the emotions are not wasted now now the process of growth begins and I can reach the, the exaltedness of my of my neshama let me just close by saying two, two short things which are very very parallel to this <coughs> Kabbalistically, <coughs> forget about the Kabbalah um, for the time being. <laughs> Yom Teruah, it's a day of crying. The word Teruah also spells Reus, friendship. The same word, Yom Teruah, also spells friendship. There's crying. There's tremendous emotional connection 
and tremendous emotional feelings on the stage due to a true, honest picture of oneself. But one understands that under all of those tears, there's a friendship. The process is really a deep process of friendship between God and man, because it gives the man the ability to grow. <clears throat> the shofar in the prophets was always used to anoint a king or to blast out, long live the king. The shofar of Rosh Hashanah, in a certain sense, is the same kind of a thing. Why? Because essentially, what are we doing with the shofar? We're saying that we're not only prepared to live with the God of love and a God of compassion, but we are also prepared to live with the God of justice as well. We're not going to take only part of God. We're going to take the whole God and have a relationship with the whole God. We're not going to have a... I'll, I'll only be, have a relationship with you on the days that you're in a good mood. The days that you're not in a good mood, I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to be anywhere near you. Everybody knows that you can't have a relationship like that. But isn't that the kind of relationship that we, we entertain with God? When God's good to me, and when I see God's love, and when I see God's compassion, then that's, everything is fine. And when I see a certain amount of judgment, or I see things are difficult, I don't want to look at God, I don't want to see God, I don't want to deal with that aspect of it. What the day of Rosh Hashanah is, is the maturity of looking and inviting a God of judgment into my life for the benefit of growth. And in a certain sense, what I'm doing is, I'm saying, God, I'll take all of you. And that is essentially a call to God coming into my life. Long live the king doesn't mean in a pa palace or a castle. Long live the king means that I want this king to live for everything that he is within me, in love, in compassion, in judging me, in looking at me, in every way. I want him in every way. And finally, the shaifer doesn't have any sounds. It doesn't have the sophistication of verbalization. All it is, is what? Is the ear that comes from within. From the neshama of the person. The word neshama really comes from the word neshima, which means the breath of the person. When I blow the, the, the shaifer with my breath, which comes from within, no verbalization, nothing with the hands, nothing with the eyes, nothing with the ears, it's just coming from within, essentially what I'm saying to God is that there's something that you blew into me, something that you infused into me, which I am now bringing out to reconnect myself with you. And that's my neshama. <coughs> so the shaifer essentially is the vehicle. The shaifer is the vehicle which brings out the neshama. What do you blow? Neshima. You blow air. The air, mitaychai. It comes from the inside. How is man created? Let's look at the verses in Genesis. And God blew from himself into man. Right? So the Gemara says when somebody blows from himself, he blows from within. God blew his neshama into us. And when we blow the shaif, essentially what we're saying is we want to blow our neshama alive again in a connection with God. And blowing that neshama reaches the point on Rosh Hashanah that we say to God in those famous words of forgiveness, Hanashamalach. The soul is yours. And this body that you made me is your doing. Have pity, have compassion on that which you made. And that's essentially what the day of Rosh Hashanah is all about. It's that drama 
of understanding the greatness of man and in, in view of that background of the greatness of man and the neshama of man, then understanding how I have to feel about myself and not having reached that greatness yet. And when I could put together the greatness of the day, of the birthday of Neshama, together with what I am and what I am not yet, and feel the two, the greatness of Neshama and the greatness of what I can be and still not, and say to God that I want more, I, I want Neshama, I want this connection, so then God's response is, God's response to the person then is, in that, in that plea, that God gets up from the seat of justice and sits on the seat of compassion and says, I still have hope in man, I still have trust in man because of the search and the crying of that teruah, of the shaifer, that man is in search of his neshama. Okay, I'll take questions now. <coughs> Why is it that uh, in the Torah yeah. there, are, there are two stories about the creation? Does that have anything to do with Rosh Hashanah? Which two stories are you referring to? Well, the... Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where first man is created, um, and then and then in chapter 2, God blows air and, and creates from the from the four corners of the earth. Like it's again. Why so your, que <laughs> your question is, why is it, why is it split? Why is, yeah. it, why isn't it brought together? Yeah, well, why is it that, that there are two stories? Why is it told twice? Okay, ways. that's a very valid question. I would, ha I would have to, I would have to, I would have to look. Uh, essentially, the way we would ask, the way I would ask the question, is why does the Torah elucidate on the creation of man later and not clearly say it out all at once at the point of creation? Why does man, why does God get into it? In, in further detail later as opposed to putting it all together. This is a question that I've often thought about. I would have to do some investigation. It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. <coughs> yeah. You relate uh, emotion and neshama. And I just want to know if uh, it's a new way of, of thinking for me in terms of emotion and neshama. The way we express how the shama is through the emotion that we express <coughs> in the physical world, the same way, cry, joy, the same emotion. Okay. It's an excellent question. <clears throat> what I would say is the following. Not every emotion that a person has is necessarily a direct uh, result of the neshama, but at least indirectly is. And let me explain what I mean by that. Certainly, when a person feels levels of frustration at not being as accomplished as he wants to be, as, as a valuable human being, as a dignified human being, as a human being with honesty, with integrity, in terms of values, ethical values, moral values, and it really bothers the person. You know, and these can be very authentic feelings. Very often these feelings are direct results of the fact that the experience that the person has just lived through, which wasn't a moral uh, event, or wasn't an ethical event, actually created an inner turmoil where the neshama was in pain. And the neshama has ways of expressing itself. And c either consciously or subconsciously, a person will be overtaken by a mood, 
or by a feeling, and sometimes those feelings come out in very strong emotions because the neshama has been touched or the neshama has felt a sense of alienation by what has just transpired. The neshama is a very sensitive individual. What is the equivalent in secular psychology to the neshama? Because that was my orientation, and I knew it didn't fit. Because I cannot define... The thing, okay, the thing that's closest to it in psychology is the conscience of man. That's the thing that's closest to it, but it's very far. It is very far. It's still very far. Because our definition of neshama is a living being, a living entity within man. Right? And, and, and conscience is not necessarily giving that much credibility as being a living entity within, within man. Now, there are a lot of other emotions that people have that, are, that also come from the neshama but have been mischanneled. Okay? In other words, a person might have a tremendous desire to be, to be happy. All right? Now, the tremendous desire that a human being has to be happy comes from his neshama. Why? Let me explain why. Because a neshama, before it comes into this world, lives in a state of utter happiness. When it comes into this world, it is all, uh, immediately brought into strange ten- territory. It's not familiar territory. It's unhappy. And the neshama wants to be happy. The urge that we have to be happy really comes from our neshama. The only thing is that we are not necessarily skilled or trained to know what it is that will make us happy. And we look for a lot of different things to make us happy. So, in a certain sense, and, uh, and let's say I get a stereo for $500, so I'm happy. So, you're going to ask me, does that happiness come from my nisham? In a certain sense, indirectly it does. I, I, I didn't define the need for happiness correctly, and then I superimposed it upon this particular thing. You know? And I believe that my happiness would come from this particular thing. But the need of man for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for happiness, though the love, giving, these are all things that come from the nisham of the person. It's just that in a very physical world and in an unskilled spiritual um, circumstance that all of those things become channeled in different directions. They go up into different, into, into different directions. Yeah. How does one get the strength to fulfill <laughs> Very well put. Very well put. The rabbi, the killjoy, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, let me answer the in the following way. Um, there's two points. There's there's the there's the the point of recognition and the point of process. 
there's no question that um, it's it's unavoidable that there comes a point in time uh, when a person does learn and when the person does does study that they come into contact with with uh, meaningful material material that that really talks to them in a way that they know that they're really being addressed there's no question about it and there does come a point of compelling recognition right and you've described that you know and now i know i can't unknow it and and it creates all of the all of the all of the strife and all of the there's no there's no question about that Solomon the king says in Ecclesiastes, kas, that with a lot of wisdom comes a lot of wrath, which essentially means that once man has the wisdom of knowing what is right, he's then responsible. And if he faults out after knowing, so then there's a, there's, there's a, a response of, of, of wrath or punishment or whatever you want to say it on God's part, you knew better. There's no question about that. But the thing is the following. As compelling as the moment of recognition is, the question that we always have to keep in the forefront of our minds is not what I expect of myself after this moment of recognition, but what does God expect of me a moment after this, this clarity of recognition? How much is God expecting of me now that after X amount of time that I didn't have the recognition, all of a sudden it came down on me as a ton of bricks? What does God want from me tomorrow? And that's what you have to always keep in focus. And God doesn't expect a person just because of a moment of recognition to instantly have the strength to be able to make the changes that will, be, that will parallel the recognition. God does not expect it. That's a superhuman feat. God doesn't expect it and God doesn't want it because it's not a natural and healthy process of changing, of growing. Not changing, but growing would be the better way of saying it. Essentially, what the person has to do with the clarity of recognition is to make a commitment, to make a commitment that in a process that's realistic to where he's been or where she's been and is going, that I'm going to commit myself to grow day by day and give myself as much time as I need to eventually get to where I have to go. In other words, the notion that I'll just start and I don't know where this is going to go might not be enough if a person really has a point of recognition. If a person has a point of recognition, he has to say to himself, by darn it, I'm going to get there because I know that this is true. But that doesn't mean that it has to happen overnight or that it should happen overnight. It means that the person has to now begin in the areas that he's most comfortable, in the areas that are easiest for him to, to deal with, the areas that are, are, the, are the most apropos. And it's not the same for any two people. It's not the same for any two people. For one person, kashus can be easy and Shabbos can be the biggest hurdle in the world. For another person, Shabbos can be... E- can be the easiest thing, and kashas can be the biggest hurdle in the world. Uh, that goes into issues of morality. It goes into virtually every phase. Uh, where in one area I relate, and in another area I don't yet relate. The important thing to know is that every mitzvah is really a network, and every mitzvah really touches the entire spiritual being, even though it's one mitzvah. So the, the question isn't, is there a priority mitzvah? Is there a priority place to start? The question, the place, the the question is, am I committed to reach? And if I am committed to reach, let me at least get in the door, at a place that's easy to. If it's putting up a mezuzah, 
if it's davening once a day, if it's being kosher on the outside, if it's keeping Shabbos at night instead of all day, but starting with keeping it just at night or just keeping it by day, whatever it might be. Wherever the process begins, wherever it's realistic to begin, we don't start in the places that are most difficult. We start at the places that are easiest. Because by starting in the easiest places, we access the whole network through the easy, easy entrance that we have, whichever one is the easy one for us. And then, as we do those mitzvahs, those mitzvahs give us strength to then go on to the next mitzvah. If a person doesn't start with any one mitzvah, then the question, how will I ever get there, is really a question, because one can't. One has to start someplace. And what it does is that that mitzvah nurtures the person, and from nurturing the person there, it gives the person the strength to take the next step, and then to take the next step. And anybody that really grew in that process will tell you that they would never have believed that they had the strength to take the second step or the third step. But that was only because they weren't yet on the first. But once you're on the first, you use your, st- your footing on the first step to get you to the second step. And the footing on the second to get you to the third. And that's essentially how it works. So if it, if it, if it feels to you unbelievable that you'll ever get there, that's because you're trying to imagine being on the tenth step without having the footing of the first nine. You need the footing. The footing is the mitzvahs that the person does, which nurture the person. Which ones? The ones that the person can begin with. The ones that are most realistic. The ones that don't create terrible challenge and terrible strife for the person to begin with. And then they'll eventually give the person more strength.